Hello and welcome to the podcast for the November issue of The Lancet Infectious Diseases. Editor John McConnell is here with me, Richard Lane, to discuss some of the highlights. John, let's start with the leading edge, the editorial this month, which is following up the fanfare, I think you should describe it, of (laughs) the press releases that were flying around a couple of weeks ago concerning progress in the search for an HIV vaccine. I was intrigued by one statement you make in the editorial, because obviously this is commenting on a trial done in Thailand, which you're going to talk about in a minute, basically saying that the latest, if you like, news in search of the HIV vaccine means that such a vaccine is tantalisingly out of reach. What do you mean by that? What this trial has shown, Richard, is that vaccination has made a difference in the acquisition of, of new HIV uh, infection in the group of people who, who receive the vaccine. Now, the relative difference is, is 31%. Uh, however, we're talking about two groups of over 8,000 people, and the absolute difference in numbers uh, between those who became infected in the group that received the vaccine compared with the group that didn't is actually only 23 people. So the absolute difference is pretty tiny. So we're basing our um, optimism on a very small difference. However, the upside is it's the first time of our HIV vaccine trial has shown a, a significant difference. So we can have a little bit of optimism that perhaps there is a way forward. On the other hand, we must measure that against the fact that we are talking about a, a, a tiny difference in numbers. Okay, thank you. Good word of caution there. Can you just give us a little bit more detail about the Thai trial? It was a randomised trial. It's actually a combination of two vaccines that have been tried before. It's a method called Prime Boost, where you prime the immune system with uh, one vaccine and then you boost the effect with a, with a, a second vaccine. Over 8,000 people in each group, the participants were followed up for over three years for the acquisition of new HIV infection. There was a 31% difference between the, the groups in acquisition of new infection. However, the, one of the downsides of this vaccine regimen is that you need to give six doses of vaccine over a six-month period. So... In practice, it would be a hard regimen to implement on a a day-to-day basis. And I think some of the other downsides are that this was a vaccine targeted specifically at the type of HIV virus that occurs in Thailand. And that's not the same type of virus that occurs in Africa, for example, where the majority of of AIDS cases take place. Indeed, I was going to pick up on that point about the generalizability uh, of these findings, these encouraging findings from from Thailand. So what needs to happen next to take the research forward? Well, I think, first of all, we need to find out what the effect is. At the moment, it's not clear exactly what it was about the combination of vaccines that provided the immune protection. So we do need to find that out. And that information will come from uh, a long-term follow-up of uh, immunological correlates, information which is currently being collected and will report in in a few years' time. We need to find a, a simpler vaccine regimen, uh, assuming that this this regimen is actually effective. We need to find a way of doing it more simply. And we need to make sure that we have a vaccine which will be effective in the parts of the world which uh, most suffer from uh, HIV. Thanks, John. And sticking with the HIV theme, if we turn now to a systematic review and meta-analysis, 
And this concerns uh, the topical issue of male circumcision within the HIV context. And The Lancet and TLID have published quite a bit on this topic. And WHO obviously are recommending widespread male circumcision as an HIV prevention strategy. But John, there is one important question, isn't there, that hasn't been resolved. And that is, in HIV settings, if heterosexual men are circumcised, what is the effect on their female partners? And that hasn't been answered before. And it sounds like a difficult area to research. It's a tricky one. So does circumcision directly prevent the partner of a circumcised man from uh, acquiring HIV infection and if it does then that would be beneficial to the whole um, circumcision programs that are going on around the world. Now it's a difficult area to study there really are very few studies particularly randomized trials on the direct effects of circumcision on transmission of HIV to, to women it's by and large when the data is collected it's collected as a secondary endpoint and therefore it's not the sort of prime outcome of the study so there's probably not enough information to give a definitive answer certainly from any one study which is why the authors of this particular paper have gone out and laid the looks systematically at what's been published and they've combined the information in the form of a meta-analysis what were they able to actually find out from from the research there? yeah well regrettably uh, not a definitive answer i'm afraid to say so they found one randomized controlled trials and six longitudinal studies which were relevant to the question they were asking and unfortunately they've shown a non-significant effect it's a trend in the direction of protection against uh, acquisition of infection but it's certainly not a a striking effect we can't say definitively at the moment uh, whether it is protective unfortunately John don't you think just bearing in mind what you said earlier about obviously the the social difficulties in doing this and ethical difficulties in doing this type of research, is there a danger that the academic community is sort of chasing the the bottom of the rainbow here? We're never going to find it. I suspect that may be the case. I I think we're going to have to be satisfied with the reasons for doing circumcision uh, as a protective measure for men. The authors do suggest that uh, the answer could only come from a randomised trial, which which would look at female protection as an endpoint. But they then, of course, qualify that quite rightly by saying that you'd need an estimated 10,000 discordant couples where the, the man was HIV infected and the, and the woman wasn't in order to do the trial and the um, collecting together those people and following them up would be logistically unfeasible and it also actually is is uh, questionable ethically as well. So in the absence of the pure randomised trial to give the evidence base that science demands. Do you think that's going to in any way slow down or impede, if you like, the campaigning uh, progress that's going on with circumcision campaigns? If the the case could be proven, I think that would be a very useful public health message. However, circumcision services are already being expanded in certainly in parts of uh, southern and eastern Africa. The link would strengthen the rationale for for doing it, but the the failure to find a link certainly does not take away from the, uh, the reasons for continuing to expand these services. And finally, John, let's return to the vaccine theme, a review looking at the urgency, really, for a vaccine for dengue infection. And John, the first thing that jumped out at me here was was this 2.5 billion, B for Bravo, billion figure. Go on and tell us more about this. Dengue is a, a, a viral disease transmitted by mosquitoes. 2.5 billion people in the tropical and subtropical countries are potentially at risk of uh, acquiring dengue infection because they live in areas where there are are competent mosquito vectors capable of transmitting the virus. That doesn't mean that 2.5 billion people are infected every year. But this is a, uh, it's a disease which is spreading again for various reasons to do to social changes, urbanisation, and I think perhaps climate change probably uh, has a role as well. So 
there, there are a very large percentage of the world's population is at potentially at risk of uh, acquiring uh, inf- dengue virus infection. And John, remind us of the characteristics of infection and the clinical symptoms associated with it. Well, most commonly, dengue is um, a self-limiting febrile illness caused by uh, one of four serotypes of the, uh, the dengue virus. However, there are about half a million cases every year of uh, a life-threatening form of the illness which is characterised by uh, capillary uh, permeability and leakage, by shock, and by uh, hemorrhagic fever, eventually leading to death. So this can be, in some cases, in a minority of cases, a very serious infection indeed. This review obviously is looking at the urgent need for the right vaccine or vaccine development in this area. The authors do draw on a number of scenarios, don't they, as to to what that vaccine might be. Do you want to comment on that? Well, I think the interesting thing here, Richard, is that we're looking at a disease which is is, uh, typically, characteristically, a, uh, a tropical disease. So until quite recently, it would have been regarded as sort of, you know, a neglected disease. Uh, but we've got now major pharmaceutical companies who are in the, f- in the field who are developing vaccines uh, against this tropical illness. So Sanofi are involved, Novartis are involved, GSK, and a number of other um, agencies are all developing vaccines uh, w- with activity ag- against de- dengue viral- virus infection. So, uh, and the reasons for this, of course, is that um, the disease is now present in parts of the world which can afford to buy vaccine and which can afford population-level vaccine campaigns. So, for example, the Novartis vaccine is being developed at a research centre which was established fairly recently by Novartis in Singapore because Singapore is a country, is a wealthy country, uh, which is now experiencing thousands of cases per year of, um, of dengue fever. Uh, and it's certainly a country which could afford a, uh, a, a public health campaign. Um, a public health vaccination campaign. The, the disease is also may potentially become present uh, in the United States. There are certainly parts of the United States where the competent mosquito vectors live. And obviously, you know, if you've got a rich country like the United States, then you've got plenty of incentive for the vaccine companies to get into this area. The countries of um, uh, of Central America or South America, they're becoming wealthier.